this is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just, uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight, so, uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay, and, um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren. We aren't holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Hello, America. Welcome to Blindsight, produced by the Audio Information Network of Colorado. I'm your host, Bill Lundgren, and I'm pleased to have you join us in this podcast. And I'm especially pleased to welcome Beth Gustin, who's going to be our guest today to talk about grief and loss. This is something that uh, we tend to have some hesitancy to talk about, we being, you know, the general public, because it's such a, uh, can be a heavy topic, but I think you'll enjoy and learn from our exchange today, certainly hope so. Welcome, Beth, to uh, joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And uh, Beth is the principal in a counseling service called Transition Through. Sorry, I'm missing. It's actually tra- Transitioning Through Change. Through Change, yes. I'm sorry. Change. I guess I don't yeah. want to change, so I kind of block out on that word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I'd like to start off with, if we could, is to tell the audience a little bit. Uh, what made you get into this specialty? You know, what drew you to this? It's interesting. I've always had um, a, a long history, starting with pet loss and grandparent loss and other relatives, um, deaths just due to natural illnesses in most cases. And then in high school, um, a number of people I knew died by suicide and other sudden deaths. It just seemed like a natural fit as I grew older. I did some hospice volunteer work, worked as a volunteer at a homeless shelter, and I, I looked at the, ironically, the play therapy route. I looked at the music therapy route, and my heart ended up here. And I've always felt like grief and loss is where I belong. The more I look at my history and the more I experience my professional um, uh, trainings and just what I'm drawn to, this this is where mm-hmm. I am, and I specialize in pet loss grief counseling, of all things, a human death also, but pet loss death, because I feel like it is something that hasn't been talked about as much over the years, and there's a huge need for it, and um, it just, again, seemed like a natural fit, given my personal and professional experiences. It sounds like you really had a lot of uh, on-the-job training through through the years, even though you didn't know uh, that's what where you were heading. Right. I think a misconception in the general public about grief, loss, depression, trauma, you know, where they all fit in. And I guess really an extension of that is when do we when do we go to a therapist? You know, how do you address that? If any of those is interfering with your daily life and the things you're trying to accomplish, go see a therapist. That's my short answer. Because I think it's important that we have someone we can talk to about the challenges we're experiencing with grief and depression or traumatic grief or trauma, all of the above. And I think it's important that we feel comfortable knowing you're not alone in these experiences. And many of us 
have a difficult time getting out of bed and going back to work or just accomplishing daily tasks that we used to be able to do. You brought up depression and grief. And in my mind, typically, if the depression was there before the grief, the grief will exacerbate the depression, but the grief doesn't cause the depression, if that difference makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think prolonged grief can cause symptoms of depression. But in my experience, if someone has depression, it was there before the grief and loss. Mm. And that's probably a lot of the difficulty in grief uh, comes from if they're already trained, so to speak, in, in depression. Sure. And I think trauma histories also play a role in that. Is it? Well, this is what uh, is happening with a lot of uh, corporations. When they have some event or, or, uh, in which, let's say, a coworker dies or whatever, they call in a grief, grief counselor immediately. Do you think that's too soon? For some people, yes. Mm-hmm. I believe that depending on how grief was or was not modeled for us growing up, was it talked about, was it swept under the rug, depending on how we as individuals grieve. Some of us are not going to be as emotive about it. We're going to throw ourselves into work. Some of us are going to find that we move on with life and then grief decides it's going to pay us a visit three, six, nine months down the road because we now have space in our brains to actually acknowledge it and cope with it. And so while I think it's really good that corporations do bring in grief counselors, I feel like they should bring them back six months after or a year after Mm -hmm. just to make sure everyone has the opportunity to speak with someone if they need to. Well, I think the, what's always interests me is in the, in some uh, Jewish community, uh, the real grief work begins a year later when they have the ceremony. I've forgotten the name of it, but the ceremony of unveiling the, the gravestone. And my friends of mine who've gone through that have talked about, that being so much more powerful than dealing with it immediately after the passing of of someone that's important to them. That makes sense to me, because if we think about it, when someone initially dies, be it human or pet, honestly, we are looking at creating burial arrangements. We're looking at uh, just trying to function, if you will, and, and move forward and complete day-to-day tasks, we don't often focus on the grief process initially because there's too many other things we have to do. We, we also get the message, get over it, move we, on. We do. You know, society gives us, what, three days, yeah. I think, to get over it? <laughs> and that, that doesn't work. Anyone who has experienced any kind of significant loss knows that's a weird formula. And I understand we need to earn a living and we need to contribute to society, and there's no way the human brain can under, like, understand what has happened in a three-day time period. We're still, we're still reeling in mm-hmm. most cases from what happened, even if it was an expected death. There's a lot of loose ends and things that have to be wrapped up before we can think about ourselves and how we're experiencing a death. When I look back, you know, Probably one of the reasons I'm a therapist is because I came from the traditional dysfunctional family. 
And one of the things that my mother got a message that she was not to cry in front of uh, us children. My my father uh, died suddenly uh, when I was eight. I was the youngest of the kids. And so she wouldn't cry. And she would, what she would do is go to, if she felt she really had to cry, she would go to a best friend's house. But she somehow got the idea that it would upset us to see her cry. And so that was the, the message we got in the family. And plus, being the only male in the family, I wasn't supposed to cry. Just having that overlay of, of toxic masculinity, which is put on us. And I was eight at the time. So, you know, I didn't get that. And it wasn't until... 35 years later, when I was doing a uh, uh, therapy training that, you know, I was kind of forced to address the loss of my father. And I addressed it with anger, which surprised the hell out of me because he didn't make the choice to, to, to die. But boy, I was that eight-year-old kid was PO'd and I never got a chance to talk about it until 35 years later. So that, I know, is destructive. Yes, and I think a lot of people will relate to that story you just shared because many families do not talk about grief and do not show emotion because there is a belief that showing emotion in front of children is not is not good. I am glad to see that it's shifting more now and that it is more encouraged, I think, to show emotion in front of kids and role model healthy expressions of emotion. But generationally speaking, that was very common, what you experienced. Right. And of course, the, the, uh, there is, I think, a, some, in some places, there's a gender difference where women are allowed to be depressed, to cry, and so forth, and grieve, but men are not given the permission. I, I think that, too, is, I hope that is changing. But it's, you know, men, with men, that kind of uh, reaction may be anger instead of, uh, instead of the grief, the, what we associate to, as grief. Yes, and I also think anger is actually one of the more common emotions that I've seen in my work with clients in, in grief, in that, especially more males, because that is one way they're able to express it. And I do hope it is changing that men can be more uh, comfortable showing emotions, but that that varies by culture, that varies by again, generation, that varies. There's a lot of factors that come into play there, and I think it will take a good time, a good length of time, before men as a whole can feel more comfortable showing emotion. When do you find people contact you and say, I need help? Many of them have been contacting me like a day or two after a death. Mm. And I I always kind of validate that I'm really happy they reached out and I'm happy to work with them. And I also acknowledge you know, within the first one to three, four months after a death, you need to focus on eating and sleeping and getting some kind of exercise and just taking care of your basic needs. Because your brain's basically in what I call intensive care, and it's going to take some time for your brain to comprehend what the heck just happened. And so I will still work with them, but I will often explain kind of the trajectory of the grief process in broad terms and give them kind of a roadmap of where they're at and where they're going. 
and I check in with them every, you know, couple, three sessions of like, are we still meeting your goals? Is this benefiting you? Because people in those first initials weeks and months after a death, they have pretty severe grief brain in most cases, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to put their keys in the refrigerator. They're going to burn breakfast. They're going to be late for things. They're going to want to sleep all the time or not sleep at all. And, and those are just normal grief responses. And so it's a lot of normalizing and validating if they call me that early on. So do you think the same process uh, also occurs in terms of pet loss? I do. I believe that pet loss is a lot more challenging to cope with in many cases because our pets see us at our best and our worst. And many people will share things with their pets they cannot share with anyone else. And that pet is there unconditionally. And so to lose that support, whether it's a designated emotional support animal or a pet or a service dog, to lose that type of support, many people don't understand it. And so I think that grief process can actually be more intense and more acute for many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, during the pandemic, I went through a year without my service dog, and that was probably the worst, uh, you know, period, because I couldn't get, get another one because of COVID. And uh, trying to maneuver. And, you know, some people will say, oh, get over it. Just a pet, you know. No, <laughs> he wasn't. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's real strange. But, you know, when we were talking, you talked about pet loss and you talked about people loss. But I think it's important also for people, myself, uh, believe that we have to deal with if we become disabled lose a function like our eyesight absolutely uh, it's very similar is it not it is absolutely it is i've been blind since birth but i had light perception and have lost that and i know that many do not consider light perception to be sight but that was also a very difficult experience for me because of the fact that i understandably utilized that vision And I do think there is an unspoken grief process that we experience when we lose an ability, be it vision or hearing or memory or any other ability we are used to having and have had for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and it's suddenly leaving us. And I do work with a lot of clients experiencing those changes as well in their lives, and the grief process is very similar. And it's also confusing for the family because they don't know what to do. I mean, you can, the family sort of, well, there's some things we have to do with human grief uh, and so forth. But the family also has suffered a loss and they may not talk about it. Nope. I also encourage, I don't see them as often as I would like in my office, but I encourage the family members of the person with vision loss to seek support as well because there is a grief process they go through. And it looks very different, in my opinion, than the one the person with the vision loss in this example goes through. Mm-hmm. And they also need just as much support and and coping skills. How do you uh, work with somebody who's dealing with grief and loss? You know, you what you just explained, you know, you find out where they are and so forth. But what kinds of thing could someone is coming to you expect? I think a big part of working with our grief is finding ways to make meaning 
out of it as far as, okay, this has happened and I don't like it. And now how can I move forward in a way that both honors my loss and helps me rebuild my life? And so a lot of my work with clients focuses on those two things. When I think about death, I think about how do we create a continuing bond with that loved one, be it human or pet. And I think about moving forward, how do we want to honor that person or pet so that we can rebuild our lives, regain or rebuild our identity and feel a sense of purpose again, a sense of peace again. I think when it comes to grief and loss with vision loss, it's about acceptance and accepting the fact that, okay, I cannot do things the way that I used to, but it doesn't mean that I can't do most of the things I enjoy doing. But a lot of that work centers around resources and learning new ways of doing things and working towards that radical acceptance, if you will, so that a person is able to to rebuild their life again. And also there's, particularly with blindness, but even in, in any of the grief, uh, I think the family system or our support network uh, needs to know how they can help us without interfering yes. in the, in the um, process we have to go through in dealing with our grief. Am I making sense? You are. And I think one of the biggest challenges as grievers, uh, I'll use the word we face here, is having to educate others on how best to help us when we don't always know how best we can be helped. Right. And that can be a really big challenge for a lot of people experiencing grief and loss, no matter what the loss is. And so much of my work also centers around, okay, let's figure out what it is you do need. And many grievers don't know what they need. And so something I tell a lot of people who want to support a griever is, you know, again, if it's a death, can you bring them food? Can you run errands for them? Mm-hmm. Can you just call and check on them? And if it's a vision, you know, vision loss, it, it's a similar thing. Can you offer to um, help them learn how to use their new smartphone? You know, can you be transportation so they can run errands and go to the doctor until they can get those resources in place for themselves? Can you, help them to make phone calls until they can learn how to use their phone again so they can make their own phone calls and things like that. And I don't think people who want to support grievers know where to start. And so it is just offer something and know that the person who is grieving is going to appreciate that very much until they can get their feet under them and figure out what they do need. It's okay to offer and to just show up with food. Just call and check every day and say, hey, how you doing? If you can be a set of listening ears, be that set of listening ears. Anything will help. Well, I, I think you had a key point in, in that we caught up in it, don't know what we need, and we somehow feel less than because we have to ask for help. And I know a friend of mine confronted me when I was trying to pass and pretend I wasn't blind. Uh, by saying, you know, how I feel uh, helping someone, how dare I keep him from having those get the same feelings by helping me, which was very powerful for me to, to think about it. And I think for any uh, anyone I talk to about it, it's okay to ask for help. It's not making you less than, but you also need to define the help that you need and not have somebody take away your uh, 
your autonomy. I agree with you. And I think something else that those of us who need to ask for help often forget is it feels good to help others. Yeah. And so not only do we need the help, but if we can allow someone to help us, they're going to feel good as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, even if we don't really, quote unquote, want the help, but we need it, or don't know what we need, we find allowing someone to help us makes us both feel better. In the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like if you're used to socially isolating when you have all your faculties, or you have a partner and just you and the partner, it's kind of, you can kind of block out everybody else until that per- person is gone or uh, that that uh, physical part of you is gone. The faculty is gone. And yeah. it's actually, been, in, a, in a way, it's a help because it forces us to, you know, to be social, to be the kind of human being we're supposed to be, that is to have social interaction. Yeah. It is. And you hit on a very key point that I also work on with my clients. And I don't typically bring this up right away because my clients would run out my door and never come back. But it's really important to look at the gifts of grief. And yes, there are gifts to our losses that we experience. And you just named a very big one. I think when we are forced to become more independent due to losing one of our faculties, for example, or forced to reach out for help and increase our support system and our social network, it benefits us. Mm -hmm. And if we had not experienced that loss, we wouldn't have done that. And that's a gift that grief can give us. Yeah, that's an important point. I think that everybody is so uncomfortable with this whole thing about about grieving because, you know, Put it, put it one way, it makes your mascara run, and you don't want to look anything less than your, your normal together person. And it's real hard to be normal uh, together person when you're dealing with, you know, with uh, something going wrong, either physically or in terms of your relationship. And we really you know, are so invested in this idea of being together people. I'm not even sure what normal means anymore or what together means anymore. And you're right. We have this belief that we cannot let other people see us be less than this quote unquote perfect person, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I love grief work because it is messy. It is ugly. It is beautiful too. And for me personally, I love walking with someone on their grief journey and watching them go from this beautiful mess, as I'm going to call it, to whole and feeling strong again and finding their purpose and finding a sense of peace. I also want to acknowledge in that our grief doesn't go away, but it gets duller. It's not so sharp. It's not so painful. And we don't want it to go away because that would take away from how much we loved our loved one who has died or it would mean that we don't we don't appreciate who we used to be when we had sight so the grief doesn't go away but it definitely transforms and changes and transitions into this new person i think that is stronger and for me personally you know watching someone go from i don't want to fall apart because i'm not allowed to to letting themselves fall apart and experience that grief that raw emotion and then to regaining, reclaiming, rebuilding, however you want to phrase that, their their life, it's a beautiful process to witness. So if 
if someone were coming to you, uh, should they expect to be in therapy forever? Are they supposed to uh, get better in three weeks or six weeks? Or, or, you know, what can people expect? Or how do you address this with, pe- with your client? I, I hate to say it depends, but it depends. Yeah. Because it depends. So no one, I will say no one is in therapy for life unless they want to be. And I will circle back to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that overall therapy is what we call episodic, meaning I am going to be here with you until you feel like you are able to walk on your own again, so to speak, until you feel strong enough, you don't need me. Um, and then you're welcome to come back and see me whenever you want. If you want to tune up, as I call it, come back every month or six, eight weeks or three months. That's fine. I have some clients who just want like a monthly check-in just to make sure they're doing okay. And mm-hmm. see, that's therapy to me. Um, but most clients, it really depends on where they're at in their grief process. And it really depends on where they want to be before they no longer need me. And it's a collaborative process. So we will talk about, you know, let's start with once a week and then once every other week and then once every three weeks. And we slowly start backing off the frequency of our sessions to see how they do. And that's also one reason why I do have a little mini check-in every every three sessions or so with every single client, because I want to make sure that this is what they need and this is still helping them. And if it's not, we'll have a conversation about that because I am well aware that there are lots of good therapists out there with different approaches and different styles. And what you need at one time in your life may not be what you want to continue needing and, and you know, and vice versa. And so I, I don't have a short answer of it'll take you six sessions. You're going to feel better uh, because I don't know until we get in there and kind of figure out what do you need and what are our goals. And I can say, you know, six to 10 sessions. I can usually say in three to five sessions, you're going to start to feel better. And most of my clients will say after even one session, they feel better because what people don't have is a place to talk about their loved one or their loss. They don't have anyone in their lives. They can talk about how sad and painful and angry and all those things that grief can be. And so having a space to do that initially is going to help them get a foundation back under them so they actually can work through the grief and meet the goals that they're trying to achieve to then not need me anymore. As I was listening to you, I was thinking what what you're suggesting and something I happen to believe is to use the therapist as we would the family physician. You know, mm-hmm. if the situation with the doc, you know, let's say you come to a doctor for a problem and it's solved shortly or you have some checkups and you have, and if there's something else that comes up that seems appropriate, you go back to your doctor rather than either or. We're in therapy or we're not in therapy. Does that make sense? Right. You, you come as you need it. It does. I mean, you, you come as you need it. And I'll have clients who come in to work on pet loss, mm-hmm. but then we end up working on family relationships right. because guess what? It's all grief. And yeah. one loss brings up other losses. And, and so I do my best to meet the client where they're at. And like I said, to make sure that we're addressing the things they want to come in to work on. But therapy can change as we go through it. Because different things come up and different needs arise and some clients want to explore how it's all tied together and some clients don't and that's okay. 
And sometimes, from my experience, if I suffer, uh, I lost my sister last year. And wouldn't you know it, uh, within the first week after she died, I had three people come in who wanted to do grief work. And I, you know, I sort of looked up at the sky and said, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> but those kinds of things can happen. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's help, helpful for me. I probably shouldn't say this as a therapist. It helps me to do my, my own grief work uh, through helping other people. It does. And I also support, I love working with other therapists as clients as well, because I think every therapist needs a therapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least at some point in our lives. <laughs> and so I always encourage as a therapist, seek your own support so that, yes, you help yourself by helping your clients, but you also be the best version you can be in that moment with your clients right. by doing your own work as well. Right. And I think that that moves away, unfortunately. Uh, I know a number of therapists who think they're supposed to know. And we do to go to another therapist. Yeah, <laughs> that's something else. One of the you know, therapeutic techniques I noticed that you do is EMDR. And I don't uh, know if people really know what that is, but also how it would be involved in grief work. Do you, would you feel like explaining a little bit of that? So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and it is a form of therapy to help with individuals who have experienced a past trauma that they still feel is holding them back today and preventing them from creating a healthier version of themselves for the future. So you have a kind of a three-pronged approach. You have one one foot in the past, one foot in the present, and just humor me, you've got three feet, so you've got one foot in the future. And you are working to heal traumatic wounds from the past so that you can function better in the present to create a better future is how I explain it. Mm-hmm. And EMDR, it, it really depends on the, the way a person's grief is showing up for them and what is keeping them stuck in their grief process because I don't want to use EMDR to mask or speed up the grief process because grief is a natural, normal part of life and needs to be experienced fully, in my opinion. However, if someone experienced a traumatic death and they cannot get images out of their head or they're really struggling with a lot of guilt due to a decision that they made or something they did or did not say or do prior to the death, uh, EMDR can kind of help move those negative beliefs about themselves that a person can form and help move those beliefs to become more positive so the person is able to function better and, and feel more in control of their lives. And guilt is a, a big part, I think, in a grief reaction. And again, I go back to my yes. my mother, who I use as an example of how not to do things. Uh, she blamed herself for the death of my father because she uh, needed to use the one car we had in the family to go spend some time with uh, his his cousin. And so my father went, in uh, a, a car with someone else and was involved in, in an accident. So she, all her life, went through that guilt. And I think that really damaged uh, a lot of things for her. 
And that's one thing that has to be identified, I, I think, in, in doing grief therapy. Guilt is, I think, one of the strongest emotions I see in my work with clients. I see it especially when it comes to pet death and human death. Um, in the example that you just gave with your mom, I see it a lot with relatives of those with vision loss or friends of those with vision loss. There's guilt there. And I think finding ways to work with guilt that's constructive. I use a lot of cog cognitive behavioral therapy when I'm looking at guilt with clients as well, because if we're able to take a good look at ourselves and where the guilt comes from, we typically find it's unfounded and doesn't have any basis. And so helping clients figure out ways to work with that as well as forgive themselves is a lot of work, I think, that mm -hmm. I do that helps with guilt. And also teaching people how to take care of themselves. I heard you mention yes. exercise and so forth right from the beginning. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's a lot more to it. And I tell all my clients that you are going to get out of this what you put into it. And so, you know, there's this conception, I think, or misconception, it could be either one, that therapy is hard. Therapy can be hard. But I've also helped clients realize it's okay to laugh in therapy. It's okay to look forward to seeing your therapist. It's okay to feel good after you leave your therapist. Uh, because, yes, you have to put in the work. Yes, you have to want to change. But how you choose to do that and how you choose to work with your therapist is crucial. And I do believe in giving clients homework because I want them to increase their self-care. And so much of the homework I give is try journaling. Go for a walk for 15 minutes a day. Go sit in the sunshine uh, it's November here, but it is 70 degrees today. Go sit in the sunshine, even for five minutes. Listen to music. You know, do these things that make you feel good so that you can increase your self-care and help yourself heal. It's not just about showering and brushing our teeth and getting dressed in the morning. It's way deeper than that. So what I'm hearing uh, you talk about is really not just in terms of focus on the grief itself, but on the whole person. And, yes. and also taking uh, people through the various stages of, of the grief and loss and know that none of them are bad. None of them are, uh, are detrimental unless we get stuck. And understanding, I, you know, uh, Kubler-Roth uh, stated those uh, five stages, and, and David Kessler has added the uh, finding meaning in life, which I think should be in all all five stages, but it, to help people move through at their pace. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, and I, I love the work of Kubler-Roth and Kessler, and I think there's also a lot more to it than just the five stages personally. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. there's more things we go through, and I, I think there should be additional stages, and I think we need to do more work on helping people realize they're not sequential. You may skip some. You might revisit yeah. some. Um, you might not experience any of them, depending on how you grieve. Um, the dual process model is one way I like to explain grief to clients along with the stages theory. The dual process model is by Strobe, and I think it's either Shut or Shoot, S-C-H-U-T. 
And it talks about loss orientation and restoration orientation and how we tend to vacillate or go back and forth between coping with the loss and grieving and also moving forward with our lives and restoring our lives. And I like that approach because it's a because it kind of gives the clients permission to step out of grief, if you will, and work on finding distractions and things they can do to help themselves get a break from the grief and then step back into the grief. Because none of us can grieve 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We feel like we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we can't. And we can't ignore the grief 24 hours a day, seven days a week either. Um, and so I think there's a lot of different grief theories and grief models out there. And I think they all have their place and they're all really good. And so finding a conceptualization of grief that fits for the client is also something I try to do. Yeah. Well, what I hear you doing is giving permission for the client to be wherever he or she is, rather than saying, oh, you yes. got to do it this way, or, you know, this is the way, you know, you, you everybody's supposed to do it. And we're not like that. We're not. I think as humans, we are very fluid. And again, I do like the, the Kessler and Kubler-Ross work that has been done. Because it does help clients kind of have a roadmap, which mm-hmm. I think we all look for. But I also think that it's it's more than that. And my clients probably get sick of this, but I'm always like, it's normal. That's normal. That's okay. That's normal. <laughs> because yeah. I think most clients don't realize that every single thing they experience in their grief process is normal. So, it, okay, Kubler-Ross can be a roadmap. But we have to be willing to take a necessary detours. Right. It's okay to kind of check that, check out that, you know, path off the road there and see where mm-hmm. it goes. And, you know, it may not be a well-groomed trail, but it's a path. It's okay to take it. Because ultimately, every person has to figure out what is going to work best for them to help themselves move forward and make meaning with their grief. If someone wanted to contact you, they want to do some work, or they may not be living uh, near Westminster, uh, where you are, uh, how do they contact you? Do you do visual work? Do uh, you using a, a, the computer, the telephone? Uh, what? What would be the best way for somebody to contact you? I do serve the whole state of Colorado, so I can do telehealth or in person. And my email address, actually my website, is just transitioningthroughchange.com. And my email address is beth at transitioningthroughchange.com. And if you want to call me, the phone number is 303-335. 9059. And I do offer sessions virtually via computer or telephone if someone does not know how to use a computer. Um, I do not take insurance. I am private pay, but I do serve the whole state of Colorado. Beth, I appreciate your uh, the information you provided and uh, the way that you, you operate. Uh, is there any last word? We're coming to the end of the session, but uh, any last things you want to say to the listeners of this program? 
that have to do with dealing with grief, grief and loss. I think the biggest thing I want people to know is if you are struggling, reach out for support, whether it's to me or to someone else. There are lots of good qualified therapists out there. I happen to specialize in grief and loss, both with my personal experience and my professional credentials. And, you know, find find support. If you know someone who's struggling, also find support because you can help them. And by helping them, you help yourself as well, like I said earlier. But don't be afraid to reach out and just say, I need help. I can't do this alone because none of us can do this alone. Thank you. On that note, We'll close the session, and I really do appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today. It was my pleasure, and I've enjoyed being here. Thank you.